Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The focus on identity didn't just happen because it was the right time for that to be happening. People have attitudes about race. They've always had these attitudes. They're not new. And the reason that they wake up in 2016 is because of the discourse in the campaign. Hello, welcome to Ezra Clench on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I've been wanting to do this particular episode for months, for months. There's this book that I knew was coming out called Identity Crisis by three political scientists who over the years I've just learned a ton from. John Sides at George Washington University, Lynn Vavrek at UCLA, and Michael Tesler at UCI. And they had been writing this book during the 2016 election and just crunching, gathering and crunching data the whole time, every day. And then for now years afterwards, like working through it all, working through every theory and controversy and idea, like everything people were talking about in the 2016 election, they had been gathering data on and and testing it in real time and then looking back and looking back and going through it and trying to figure out in, in a really rigorous, methodologically serious way, what the hell happened? Who is right? What should we actually learn? The result is this book, Identity Crisis, and I got an advanced copy months ago, and I think it is without doubt the most important, most illuminating book written on the 2016 election. And in doing that, I think it's one of the most important books for understanding American politics today. Really, it's using the 2016 election to illuminate how we are actually behaving, what our coalitions look like, what is really the dividing lines in in American politics. So we cover a ton of ground here. There are so many findings in the book that if you just really absorb them, they can rock your understanding of politics or at the very least clarify it. So I was thrilled to be able to sit down with them and have this conversation and just go through this piece by piece by piece. I think it's particularly important now because we're on the cusp of another election, of course, And if we don't understand the dynamics which are actually driving political behavior, the ways in which people are associating with each other, the ways in which their fundamental connections and loyalties and ideas are changing, we are not going to understand the election about to happen. We are not going to understand the one coming in 2020. No one election tells us everything. But given how wrong so many people's models were in 2016, my model included, um, my understanding of how American politics was going to work included, really getting serious about what the data tells us, not just what pundits want to theorize about, it's critical to have a serious sense of this going forward. So thank you so much to them for being here. Um, this is a great conversation. You can email me, as always, at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But without further ado, here are the authors of the very, very important new book, Identity Crisis. I'm not going to say all your names. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I am thrilled we're doing this. I want to do this for a long time. I think this is by far the best book written on 2016, and everybody should read it. And if not read it, listen to the podcast. So I want to um, structure this by first talking through some of the big themes, and then I want to go through a bunch of your findings. Lynn, why is the book called Identity Crisis? So 
We call the book Identity Crisis, and it has several meanings. The larger meaning is we want to suggest that there was a frame of choice in the 2016 election that was about the question, what kind of country do we want to be? What does it mean to be an American? Inclusive of people who are different or exclusive of people who are different? And so we're suggesting that there were lots of ways that identity came to be important in uh, 2016, and that larger question is one of them. So it seemed to me reading the book, Michael, that one of the big arguments is that policy lies downstream of identity. Cognition lies downstream of identity. A lot of the way people saw the world was refracted through their identities, which I think is a reverse of how we often talk about identity politics. Yeah, and I think that that's a term that we use a lot in the book, actually, is refracted. So I'm, I'm glad that you said that. One thing that partisan identity has always created this bubble of alternate reality, where we fit, how we view the economy, how we view the world— What was interesting about 2016 is that that reality now starts to encompass other identities, how you view racial groups, how you you view immigrants, how you view Islam. And so we really are living in different realities on how we view policy that's not just partisan identity but also racial identities become highly activated. Is that actually a new 2016 thing? So I wouldn't say it's a new thing, but I would say it's a stronger thing in 2016. So we start to see this a lot in the Obama era, and then Trump kind of takes what happened during the Obama era, and he puts it on steroids. Why did it get stronger? A couple reasons. So with Trump, he simplifies the politics of race, is I think a, a really easy way to think about it. Obama simplifies the politics of race also, meaning that If you were a low-educated voter, it was hard to know where the party stood on race. The four of us take it for granted that the Democrats have long been the more racially liberal party. But if you were a low-educated voter, most low-educated voters were having a hard time doing that before Obama. That becomes really important because these lower-educated voters are also the voters who have the most conservative views about race, immigration, Islam. And so with Obama— being polarizing because of who he is and Trump being polarizing because of what he says, that kind of takes politics, which has always had this strong identity component and makes it even stronger. All right. I want to go into some of the numbers here because I I thought some of this was crazy. (laughs) You write that in a Pew survey from 2007, whites were just as likely to call themselves Democrats as Republicans. It was 44% to 44%. But they quickly fled the Democratic Party during Obama's presidency. By 2010, whites were 12 points more likely to be Republicans than Democrats. And by 2016, that gap had widened to 15 points. That happened in six years? Yeah, and so— That seems crazy. Well, that's that's what I always point to as the most important graph in the book. And it's one that shows that— See, I I, I zeroed in on it so quickly. You you know what's good, Ezra. (laughs) So from 1992 to— 2008, basically, there's no gap in how low-educated whites are distinguishing partisanship. And then they start to diverge. And you get this situation by 2015 that you're looking at, you know, upwards of a 15, 20-point gap between 
how low-educated whites are identifying. Low-educated whites become more Republican during the Obama years. And one of the things that we're able to show is, is that this has a lot to do with race. And so it's not that all of the low-educated whites are moving towards the Democrats. It's the low-educated whites who think that racial inequality is due to lack of work ethic. The number here is really, really big. I mean, you just said low-educated whites, but if I have what I'm reading to you right, that 15-point gap is just whites. You write that among whites who had a high school degree, it became 24 percentage points more Republican than Democratic. I mean, given that there seems to have been a lot of stability in election outcomes over this period of time, right? Like the country is closely divided in 2000, in 2004, in 2008, 2012, 2016. It feels like a shift that big, Lynn, like you'd see landslides or something. Like I have trouble believing it. So one of the things that I think is interesting about reading a book like this that has a lot of data in it and a lot of graphs is you're getting snapshots of these elections that are different than maybe the way you've thought about them from watching the news or reading the newspaper. And so this is one of those little snapshots about what's happening under the surface. And when you think about the outcomes of elections like you just did, you have to remember there's a million other things going on. So the closeness of 2000 then leads us to have lots of effort at registration and turnout in 2004, and then the global financial crisis in 2008. And all those things are sort of happening at the same time and affecting those outcomes. But what we want to show you in this figure is that throughout all of that, there's this underlying trend that is happening. And it may not be shaping the outcomes, but it's going to shape the outcome in 2016. So you have this metaphor that I really like in the in the book, John, about this idea of a wave versus a reservoir. Reservoir? Reservoir? How do you say that word? Reservoir? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about that. We stole this from a political scientist, Larry Bartels, who— I steal a lot of things from Sure. Larry. And he wrote a piece about the European elections, in which people identify— the same kinds of factors as mattering. And he says, people talk about it like a wave. Well, what does a wave mean when people use that term? What they usually seem to mean is that, oh, there was a set of attitudes about immigration or racial minorities or whatever, and those attitudes got a lot less favorable. And that's what's catalyzing the growth of these populist parties and maybe helping Donald Trump. It's like Trump. a theory of change, right? Like yeah. something changed. So, yeah. You, in other words, if the wave metaphor is right, then what you should be able to do is to track opinion over time and say, wow, the percentage of people who oppose immigration has gone way up, or the percentage of people who have less favorable views of these groups has gone way up. That's wrong. It hasn't. The actual trend lines are pretty flat. And in fact, views of immigration were more favorable in 2016 than they were 10 years prior. But the, the better metaphor is to use the reservoir. So the reservoir says there's no change, but there's a range of sentiments out there. Some are more favorable towards these groups. Some are less favorable towards these groups. The question is, does politics activate those beliefs and sentiments in more powerful ways than it has in recent elections? And so you can have an election that creates an identity crisis or makes these issues matter without changing the actual number of people who believe those things. The more important question is, do those things come to affect their choices in the election? So this is something that, that you've talked about a lot, Lynn. I want to try to think about how to say this. I get into a lot of discussions with people nowadays about the idea of identity politics and, and how it works. And one of the things that I feel is really toxic in the way we talk about it is we sort of have this idea of identity politics as static, as there's like one identity politics. We have an identity. 
when there are many, uh, as I understand it, there are many. You can call a lot of identities in me, right? I'm originally Californian. I live in Washington, D.C. I'm Jewish, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that seems to be happening between 2012 and 2016 is that the messages the candidates choose, what Obama and Romney chose to fight about and what Clinton and Trump chose to fight about, activated different identities in in the population. Both had identity politics. Worker is an identity. Manager is an identity. Maker, taker are identities in a way, although not too many people are like, I'm a taker. <laughs> but, but there was a, a kind of agreement between Obama and Romney about what to fight about and then an agreement between Clinton and Trump about what to fight about and that that elicited or activated, to use your word, John, different identities in the population. Is that is that reasonable? Yes. If you were in my graduate class, I'd be giving you an A+. Plus. Oh, wonderful. That is exactly the idea that we want to try to get across in the book. And it's really important to say that the focus on identity didn't just happen because it was the right time for that to be happening. These... Attitudes, people have identities, as you've said. They have attitudes about race. They've always had these attitudes. They're not new. And the reason that they wake up in 2016 is because of the discourse in the campaign. And so the candidates have agency in what we're talking about and how the election gets framed. It's so easy to forget this, but everybody knows this. In 1960, we're talking about the new frontier and going to the moon and beating the Soviets, not because it was time to talk about that, but because that is how John F. Kennedy presented the choice in a really different way than Stevenson presented it only four years earlier. So yes, what they're talking about shapes how the conversation in the country plays out. But the other thing about this that seems true is that the base on identity is Republican-Democrat. But the thing is that the reason that the alignment of group identities like race and religion with partisan identities is so important is because it's absolutely true that the choices of the candidates makes a difference in terms of which identities matter for your choices in an election. But if we're going to organize politics around Democrat versus Republican, and then we're going to layer on top of that, that Democrats stand for this set of ideas and these groups, and Republicans increasingly stand for a different set of ideas and a different set of groups, then partisan politics becomes an instantiation of a fight about inclusion and exclusion and whites and blacks and brown people and Muslims and all of that stuff. And so we've transformed partisan politics from a fight about, I don't know, the size of government and the issues they typically fight about into a fight about these really emotionally charged issues around who's an American and what America is. Well, we say we changed politics into that, but it also seems we kind of changed reality into that. So there's something you guys read in the book that I just keep thinking about. So according to YouGov economist polls, Republicans in the highest income quintile, those making more than $100,000 a year, were a little bit less satisfied than Democrats in the lowest income quintile, those making less than $20,000 per year. So economic dissatisfaction, right, is a partisan phenomenon. I think that one of the ways we think about politics is that a lot of stuff is just politics, but at least there's this objective thing of the economy grounding our interpretation of what's going on. Oh, Ezra. And that, <laughs> and that implies to me it's not true. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the challenge is always that when partisan identities become strong and salient, that there's lots of things about the objective world that you can filter through your partisanship and come up with a different answer about what the world really is like. And increasingly, the economy is one of those things. Only when economic events are so dire, like in the Great Recession, that it's almost impossible to deny the reality to Democrats and Republicans to come together in a similar perception of objective reality. 
when it comes to you know politics as of 2015, economic perceptions are, are largely, and a lot of the so-called anger around you know the election is really a, basically a phenomenon of the Republicans who haven't been in power for eight years in the White House, and so they're the ones who look disgruntled. It's not really any objective reality at all. Help me through this, though, because this is a crazy term that Republicans making more than 100000 per year were more economically dissatisfied than Democrats making less than $20,000. I can imagine there being some size of partisan filter on how we feel about the economy. That's big. This is not new. This has been happening. This has been stable? It has grown over time, the partisan bias. One of the things that also gets layered on top of that, though, is filtering the economy through a racial lens and through your racial That probably attitudes. makes it better. <laughs> it makes it <laughs> that, that, probably, that probably eases the stakes of this. And so back in 2004, I like 2004 as a comparison. It's an election where the unemployment rate's coming down, much like it's coming down in 2012. But in 2012, your perception of how the unemployment rate, whether it's going up or down, isn't tied to your racial attitudes. It is tied to your partisanship. But by 2012, those two become aligned, and they become increasingly aligned over Obama's presidency. So, but wait, I want to—I want you to say more on this because this was another one of these quotes I flagged. Before Obama's presidency, how Americans felt about black people did not affect their perceptions of the economy. After Obama, this changed. Yes, and so in 2004, you do not see— 2008, How big is the effect? It's a pretty good-sized effect, and it, it is tied in with partisanship. But even when you control for partisanship— you are seeing strong racial conservatives being— How do we know how Americans feel about black people? When we say that part that of it, what are we saying? That is a great question. And so there are multiple measures that we use to get at this. The one that we rely on often is basically views of racial inequality. Do you think racial inequalities do more to structural factors? Well, if you do, if you think racial inequalities due to discrimination, we call you racial liberal. If you think it's due to blacks not trying hard enough, we call you racial conservative. But we also augment those along the way with other measures, things like how hardworking or how intelligent do you rate racial groups. When this happens, is this under the control of presidents? I guess what I'm asking, Lynn, is was this Barack Obama's message? Was it his politics? Was it political choices he made that created this divergence? Or was it just him? Was it just the fact of an African-American president? On some things, it's going to be both, but a lot of this is just who he is. And I'm going to talk about my favorite Michael Tesler finding that isn't in our book, but is in another book of Michael's. And, you know, we've been asking people for a long time, can you place the Democratic Party uh, to the left of the Republican Party on issues? One of those issues is aid to minorities. And a lot of people can do this, but a lot of people can't do it. And as you might expect, people with a college degree are better able to do it than people without a college degree. And that gap prior to 2008 is pretty big. It's, you know, 15, 18 points, something like that. Barack Obama gets elected. And the next time we ask, those without a college degree are almost as good at placing those parties in the right place as the people with a college degree before Barack Obama became president on this issue, which party is better at aid to minorities? Now, some of that might be because of policy, um, but a lot of it is who he is. And the value of that person being in the White House is almost as great as a college education for these high school graduates. So one thing also about Obama, too, that it's hard to disentangle 
what he did, which is try to deactivate race. He has a more moderate agenda than a lot of other Democrats had objectively based upon what are called nominate scores that kind of derive an objective ideology. But the way he was perceived and the way he was covered were much different. And so when you say, was Obama polarizing because of who he is or because of what he did? Well, the polarization started because of who he was. But then as time goes by, what he does gets increasingly portrayed and increasingly absorbed along in accordance with your identity. Obama phones. Right. Yeah, from yeah, the, the 2012 election campaign. I, so I did this piece. I, I think I talked to, uh, actually, I talked to two out of three of you for it. Um, this piece, White Thread into Browning America. And one of the things I was thinking about in that piece was it kept coming up, you know, was there a way to talk about this? I remember talking to Jennifer Richardson. Um, was there a way to talk about race and, you know, demographics and, and talk about it in a calmer way? And, and thinking that, well, whatever the leaders do, when you look at how Obama talked, and then you look at who he was filtered through. When you looked at how Bill O'Reilly talked about Obama, about how Rush Limbaugh talked about Obama, it was much more racially charged than how Obama himself spoke. I mean, you have these, I mean, there's on the eve of the 2012 election, Bill O'Reilly saying, like, the white majority, you know, like, this is not, like, the the white establishment. It doesn't have the power anymore that it used to have. We just had Laura Ingram go on Fox News and say, you know, there is this huge demographic change, and let's be honest, none of us voted for it. And by the way, us was just just like an amazing, like, who is us? <laughs> um, That's the secret to the entire Trump messaging strategy. I, I hesitate to call it a strategy, but the us versus them. So the in-groups and the out-groups. And it's a big part of what we're trying to demonstrate through data in the book is that for a long time, we thought that the, the politics of race and racial attitudes was about how whites in America thought about out-groups. And what's happening as Trump talks, you know, we, he'll say at his rallies, we all know, just like you were saying, you know, Laura says us, and that's the people there supporting him, that they, and mm -hmm. sometimes they are Muslims, and sometimes they are the media, but it's always an outgroup. And so everything is put in the frame of us, the good, the good guys fighting the good fight, and them, the people who are trying to stop us. And so in 2016, you start to see white's attitudes about the in-group playing more of a role. What's happening to us instead of just how we feel about them. It's really useful to compare Trump's talk on this issue with, I mean, Obama's an easy comparison, but go back to George W. Bush and go back to what he said at the Islamic Center here in Washington, D.C., right after September 11th, and how careful he was to distinguish between, you know, a group of terrorists and Muslims writ large, the religion of Islam itself, um, you go back to that message, and you can see there that here's a, here's a candidate and a president that's going to talk about a very divisive issue in a way that is not an us versus them frame. He's not going to do it in this way. And even generically, presidents have always felt this need to offer this kind of, maybe it's kind of bland, but still it's this sort of patriotic notion of Americans together, these patriotic kinds of rituals that we all, the presidents are expected to engage in. You know, Trump really does very little of that. He's very hard-pressed to come up with a, a frame for anything, any issue, any occasion that is truly about a broader us. The us is always a more delimited group, oftentimes with implicit or explicit racial content, and the, the them, therefore, is, is always not far away. So 
a couple examples that I love from past presidents or past party decisions on how far I think we've come in a short time is one nineteen ninety one when David Duke is running for governor. Week before the election, George H.W. Bush basically says, we don't want you in the party. David Duke, former KKK Grand Wizard, running in uh, Louisiana. Louisiana for governor. And George H.W. Bush very strongly disavows him. The other example that I really like is 2002. Trent Lott praises Strom Thurmond, and he loses his leadership position in the Senate for that. And his praise of Strom Thurmond was a very implicit praise. Basically, you ran a good campaign in 1948, and if you would have won, we wouldn't have as many problems. Is that a implicit racist statement? Sure. But is that on par with a hundred different things that we've seen in this current era? I think the difference is, is that back then the party elites and the Republican Party tried to control this message, and there were sanctions if – you were saying we are running a more explicit racial campaign. I, I'm I'm trying to think about this. So I mostly agree with this, I think. But I want to try to take it from the other perspective. So it's easy to go back to George W. Bush's, what I would say what is one of his finest moments, that speech at the uh, about Muslims. On the other hand, you guys remember Heartland voters, right? Heartland voters was a real us versus them thing. They're like the like the pointy-headed coastal elites who go windsurfing and they speak French. I mean, freedom fries. <laughs> like that is some us versus them shit. Like that's weird us versus them shit right there. And I wonder sometimes, it is clear that Donald Trump is a particularly us versus them, in-group, out-group, transactional, like zero-sum politician. But also, I wonder how much this process we're talking about throughout this conversation of this stacking of what us and them means, right? Of that us now means, you know, Republicans, and it also means white, and it also means Christian, and it also means heartland, and it also means like doesn't like cities, even if we're not, you know, a lot of us, a lot are rural. That it is the stacking of the uh, coalitions, right? The stacking of different identities on top of each other. You know, what Liliana Mason talks about as being less cross-pressured. Whether or not that's what makes some of this us versus them rhetoric vibrate that much more powerfully. I don't think that we would disagree with the notion that there has been more sorting and the parties are more homogenous. And so the stacking, as you call it, which I really like as a visual idea of what's happening, is right. Now, we will go a long way in the book to try to demonstrate that what's unique about 2016 relative to prior elections is the unusual size of that racial identity or identities that are tied to race, ethnicity, and religion. And that it isn't all kinds of modernity or how, whatever you want to cosmopolitanism, however you want to think about it. It isn't coast versus you know, the middle of the country just because we don't understand each other because our jobs are different. That it isn't that. That in 2016, it really is an unusual focus on this set of ideas. So I want to go back to this question about education and particularly the way lower educated voters begin to sort and, and change. This seems to me to be something that your book really establishes as a key part of the story, but it's actually a little bit difficult to talk about. So I want to try to do so. <laughs> There's a huge education gap around Trump. Um, Trump does much, much, much better with uh, non-college whites. 
And there's been a lot of ways of interpreting that finding. One way of interpreting that finding is that non-college whites felt condescended to, that there was a sort of mores and values. There's a lot of information being put forward by Hillary Clinton that people just, you know, sort of backed off from. It, it felt like she wasn't for us if we were not, you know, a college-educated, you know, we weren't part of her tribe, deplorables. And you, I think, have a lot of evidence to suggest that the education gap is basically a proxy for a racial attitudes gap and that what's happening is that a lot of people who are not that knowledgeable about where the parties fall on different issues become extremely knowledgeable first through the Obama presidency and then through Donald Trump turning dog whistles into foghorns <laughs> um, and they begin to sort much more around racial attitudes. I guess first I want to stop there and ask, is that is that a reasonable summation of your view on this? What we find in the book is that the diploma divide between better and less well-educated whites goes away when you account for views about race and immigration. It doesn't go away when you account for their economic or financial concerns. It seems to us that it's the racial stuff that is, is the crucial thing that's differentiating whites in terms of their education levels. That's not to say that there couldn't be other things at work. And there's a lot of things that were said and happened in 2016 that, you know, survey data didn't go out and measure ahead of time and didn't give us really any good purchase on those things. And I don't personally think that, that Clinton's line about deplorables was a, even remotely a good idea. As a Well, you don't think that worked out well for her? No. <laughs> well, I don't think it actually changed anything in terms of people's minds. But, of course, when you're thinking about how does the rhetoric of political figures escalate or de-escalate dynamics around these issues, using a word like deplorable to refer to this in large and somewhat, at least somewhat diverse group of people is a bad move in countless different ways. But I think ultimately, a lot of the diploma divide does come down to the fact that whites of different levels of formal education have different views of these issues. And the challenge for Clinton was that there was a substantial number of them still voting for Obama in 2012. But when Trump comes along and Clinton, to her, in terms of her message, and creates a sharper contrast, then it's clear for those voters that if they want to vote based on those issues, their candidate is the is the Republican now. It's not a Democrat. Can you say more on the idea of sharper contrast, though? Because one thing you get into very quickly in this conversation is that if you're going to say this was about racial attitudes, then how could it have been a sharper contrast in 2016 when both candidates were white than in 2012 or 2008 when one of the candidates was black? How can you have these Obama-Trump voters if this is really about race? So there's a couple things going on here. One is what we were talking about earlier with Barack Obama doing everything he could to neutralize the politics of race. Hillary Clinton runs a much different type of campaign with regard to race than Barack Obama does. Hillary Clinton's out there talking about systematic racism. She's talking about implicit biases that we all have. And part of this is because she doesn't energize the Obama coalition to the same degree that Obama does just by nature of who he is. Clinton also comes with baggage on race from the 1990s of things like Sister Soldier, things like Super Predator, things like welfare reform that – were not very racially progressive, and people like Colin Kaepernick called her out and said, hey, I'm not going to vote for either of these guys because it's like they're trying to decide who's going to be the least racist of the two. And so Clinton is drawing this sharp contrast, and Trump is drawing this sharp contrast. Meanwhile, the party coalitions are moving further apart on this dimension. And so if you would have asked me before 2016, could it have been more racialized than Obama? I would have said, no, of course not. That's crazy. 
But I also didn't expect the campaign to take on the dimensions it does. And that became a central message for both sides in a way that it wasn't for Obama. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I want to talk about the real deplorables. I want to talk about media. I want to talk about (laughs) about us in the press. So you say that um, the most striking thing in the media coverage of the election is just – and we're talking here in the primary – is just how much of it Trump received. From May 1st, 2015 to April 30th, 2016, Trump's median share of cable news mentions was 52%. He received half of the coverage and all other candidates in both parties split the other half. You say that on CNN, between August 24th and September 4th, 2015, he got 78% of all coverage. On Evening Network News, uh, by November 2015, Trump had received more Evening Network News coverage than the entire Democratic field. What was the role of the media in the rise of Donald Trump? Can I just jump in before we dig into that? And I'm going to say this before we have the conversation about what you want to talk about. Just to say that whenever I think about this, and we had endless conversations about this, the three of us, as we were writing these chapters, that, you know, we're going to have this conversation in the next couple of minutes about how all this coverage drove support for Trump, or maybe not, but I think that's where we're going. And I just want everyone to think about the counterfactual world in which the media coverage was different. So there wasn't endless coverage of Trump rallies, and they didn't capture every word he said on live television all the time, and he wins the election. In which case, we would be sitting here saying, did the media drop the ball? And if they had been at all those rallies and captured him saying all those horrible things, voters would have known, and they would not have voted for him. So I want to have this conversation about what role the media played in the reality that we live in with what the data we have. But it is also important to keep in mind that counterfactual world in the back of your mind. I'll just say that here's what we can show empirically. You said it, Ezra. He got a lot of news coverage. Why is that important? You've got 16 candidates, 17 if you want to count Jim Gilmore. Um, and I don't particularly. <laughs> and that encapsulates the challenge of his campaign in a, in a nutshell. So voters have a tough choice they got to figure out how to make sense of a, a big field of candidates. They don't know who many of these people are. Most of us, even like primary voters, don't know out-of-state senators much about them, much about the record, even their in-state senators sometimes. So it's a huge challenge for voters. On, and sometimes parties simplify that. Parties say, hey, here's who we think is the front runner, And, and you, that person racks up a bunch of endorsements and, and gets the kind of attendant buzz and, and maybe donations and stuff like that. But, of course, the Republicans didn't do that. So now there's no signal coming from 
party leadership about who the front runner should be. Well, how's a voter going to get a signal? Well, they're going to take their cues from who's getting a lot of attention in the news. And the reason that this helps Trump in particular is because he's so good at getting news coverage. He does things that are newsworthy. And so as a consequence, especially for voters whose beliefs about issues like immigration make Trump's message resonate with them, they're going to gravitate toward him when he gets all this coverage. And no other candidate can really get enough oxygen to make a dent. So this seems to me to be the the question you're raising here, Lynn, which is there's one issue of sheer quantity of coverage and there's another issue of nature of coverage. Like one question is, and I, I recognize, right, everything is a counterfactual, but but one question is you can imagine a world where the media just didn't really cover Trump, but I don't really think that's the world we're talking about. It's like Donald Trump, you, you guys right here, he was getting something like 50-some percent of the coverage um, in the Republican primary and polling around 30%. So what if he had gotten 30% of the coverage? That's not a world where people wouldn't know he said crazy things at rallies necessarily. But it's a world where there's more room for a Marco Rubio, a Ted Cruz perhaps, to get their message out, to, to get seen. That seems to me to be the space that – particularly in the primary, if you talk to strategists on those campaigns, like that's what they were frustrated by. They don't really say to us in the media, you cover Trump too positively. They say you covered him too much. Yeah, I I don't know what to say about whether Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio would have emerged stronger in the primaries if they had gotten some of that Trump share of coverage. There are a lot of indications that the share of coverage in primaries is correlated with poll standing. And so, yeah, sure, maybe they can expect to have had a a better performance if they had gotten more coverage. But then I think about the nature of this particular race, and I, you know, the contrasts were so stark between Trump and the rest of the field that I I don't know if knocking 20% off his share really would have changed the way things were shaping up. So this I was, feel like this is a place where you three have some maybe differing views. This, are, this was probably our area of biggest uh, disagreement, and I'm probably the most on the <laughs> anti-media side of things. And one of the reasons is, is that I do see the media's role, especially in primaries, as one of gatekeeper. And John Zoller, famous political scientist, one of the things that he has shown is that historically you have had – um, you, you've had divergence between poll numbers and media coverage. And it tended to be candidates like Jesse Jackson or Jerry Brown who were doing okay in the polls but were not getting a lot of media coverage. You can think of Ron Paul in 2012 and his supporters would go, hey, Ron Paul's at 15 percent. Why isn't he getting any coverage? Well, because you're not deemed a serious candidate by the media. And I think we disagree a little bit on what is that media role as a gatekeeper. And by not just giving Trump proportional coverage, but giving him disproportional coverage to his poll numbers, that's an important signal. And that, if anything, is signaling that he is more important, not less important than his poll numbers say. And so I do hold the media responsible. I just think it's it's difficult. I don't disagree with anything that Michael just said. But I think if you're the person who has to decide, Trump emerges almost immediately after a couple days, and a lot of that is because of the coverage he got in, you know, orchestrating the big reveal down the escalator, you know. But he then becomes a contender, like the front runner. And so if you're deciding how to cover that, and he's saying, 
outrageous things. So I I just don't know which mistake you want to make. You oh, know? I, that that is a hard. As somebody who had to orchestrate some of this coverage, I want to go back to the escalator because I think that's an interesting point. Um, here's how I understand what happened there. I think the media intended to play a gatekeeper role of Donald Trump. The media did not take him seriously as a candidate, but they took him seriously as was a spectacle. I mean, I remember the Huffington Post said for a long time, we're only going to cover him in our celebrity section. Trump made a bargain that a Ron Paul, for instance, was not willing to make, which was whether or not he did it consciously or subconsciously, he didn't get coverage because he came down an escalator. Nobody cared that he came down an escalator. He got coverage that day because he called Mexican immigrants rapists and murderers. He said they're criminals, and some of them he assumes are good people. The thing that Donald Trump was willing to do again and again was in a world where the media would not cover him, was not going to, and again, I don't know if he thought about it like this, but was not going to cover him as a serious candidate. What he did was hack into the fact that we cover things that are outrageous, offensive, and conflictual. And because of who he was. And because of who he was. But I think the theory prior to this, and this is what I'm a little bit curious if if your results make you think differently about, the theory prior to this was that better to get no coverage than very negative coverage. So much as like there's that line, all publicity is good publicity, that is not actually how most politicians act. They are very afraid of bad publicity. Donald Trump has never been afraid of bad publicity. He is perfectly willing to get bad publicity or at least what the media would read as bad publicity, even though some of his base may like it. And he was basically willing to make that trade. He would get extremely bad coverage so long as it was a lot of it. If he had come down that escalator and given a normal political speech, it would have been like, we would not remember what it said today if he had not won the, the election. It is because we can all remember what he said, that he said something so nuts, um, so offensive, let me put it that way, that it worked. And that to me was what he did differently. It wasn't just what we did. It's that he understood what newsworthy really meant. And that he got, he kind of, I think he basically hacked our system pretty effectively. Well, there was a couple other things that made this work for him. And he was lucky. One was that we show in the book that there were times when he created controversies in the primary and it hurt him. His standing among Republicans in the electorate went down after he criticized John McCain's record as a prisoner of war in, in Vietnam. It went down after he tangled with Megyn Kelly in that first debate and said she had blood coming out of her whatever. It went down when he skipped that debate in January and held his own little rally on the side and all the candidates went to the debate and made fun of him on the stage. So it was absolutely possible for bad news to hurt him the problem was twofold. One, almost all of those incidents were in the news for a day or two and then replaced by something else. And so as a consequence, nothing really ever stuck to him. And the other thing that was helping him, frankly, was that there was just no single alternative, right? And so in some sense, bad publicity would have been worse for him if it had been a two-person race between him and one other Republican. Once he got to a two-person race against Hillary Clinton, the bad publicity absolutely hurt him. We show in the book, the amount of news coverage he got in the primary was positively correlated with his poll numbers. You go to the general election, the amount of news coverage he got in the general election was negatively correlated with his poll numbers. When he got bad news because of Access Hollywood or other kinds of things, his poll numbers tended to go down. But is that about the electorate that was being appealed to, or was it about the candidate structure? Because towards the end of the campaign, there was this theory that at the end of the primary campaign, that as a field winnowed, there would be a flight to one of the other candidates. And, and even as the field got a lot smaller, Donald Trump just kept dominating well, it. Well, I think that was, I think it was in some sense too late at that point. So the really interesting test, which we'll never know the answer to, was what if the field had winnowed earlier? 
and it winnowed in October and November of 2015 instead of March of 2016, then we might have had a different story. I think the other thing working in Trump's favor, frankly, was what was controversial Mm -hmm. to many Republican leaders, and including the people that he was running against, was not controversial with many uh, Republicans in the electorate. And so when when you look at the spikes in news coverage about his speech— uh, when he announced his candidacy or his later statements that we should have a database of Muslims or maybe have a ban on Muslims traveling to this country. All of those things elicited so much pushback from many in the Republican Party. But if you go and you look at polls that were taken, it wasn't clear that the majority of Republicans were at all opposed to what Trump was suggesting. And so in some sense, he benefits because some of the controversies he created were not really controversies. And one of the things that we can show is, is that two days before the election, you know, Trump is at in the polls. And then immediately after the rapist comments, there's a a jump up. And that jump up is not spread equally among all Republicans. It's concentrated among Republicans who are concerned about immigration. You mean two days before he comes down the escalator? Two days before he comes down the escalator is the first poll data point we have. He goes from where to where in the polls? He goes from about two points. I don't think we have that graph in the book. That one ended up on the cutting room floor. But he He's ends, only pulling at two points when he jumped he, in? He, in June, before he does his announcement, he is nowhere in the polls. And one of the nice things we're able to show is, is that the spike in media kind of leads the spike in the polls. But and, we're also, and this happens. So when candidates declare, they get a spike in media coverage and they get a spike in poll numbers. This is a regular right. feature. I remember this happening to Rick Perry in 2012. That's an excellent example. And I just got a thumbs up from John for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) And so after Trump announces, too, that rapist comment gets a lot of steam. You know, Univision drops them, NBC drops them, I think Macy's drops them. But that's negativity that is activating people with those beliefs in the party. And so you see his rise in the polls shoot up immediately among people who are concerned about immigration. So one of the things that this leads into is there's also there's a media side of the the Trump phenomenon, but but there's also a very substantive side of it. Um, you write that the reason Republican primary voters came to support Trump was a direct consequence of what he campaigned upon. These sentiments were often more prevalent among Republican voters than Republican elites, um, and Trump went where the Republican voters were, despite denunciations from conservative intellectuals. So there's a model of the Republican Party where it's like the elites are playing gatekeeper against a bunch of very popular sentiments within the base that they were afraid of having broken out. And for a long time, they were successful in that. They, they had a more, say, moderate party on immigration than they had a moderate base on immigration. And that Donald Trump, like, made the market competitive again, so to speak. I think that's exactly right. And he is less constrained. He doesn't have to worry about party leadership saying, get in line with Orion budget on entitlement cuts. What does Trump care about entitlement cuts or if he is upsetting the Ryanists and the party? What does Trump care if he's upsetting the Koch network and their libertarian views? He's not getting their money. And so he is able to bypass those gatekeepers, the party gatekeepers and the donor gatekeepers, in a way that another candidate just couldn't and be viable. And that's where Lynn coined hunting where the ducks are. It's, it is one of the unusual— Moments. Well, she didn't coin that <laughs> in terms of Trump. <laughs> What's funny is I think I've quoted you saying hunting where the ducks are. So that's really a, that, a that's Lynn. a maverick. Yeah, all right, that's a maverick. <laughs> but when Michael tells this story, I I always think about something that people don't appreciate about the political space, 
we can talk a lot about institutions, and we typically think about the Supreme Court and Congress, and those are the political institutions. But we have these norms that have been structuring elections and party politics and candidate emergence and apparently candidate messaging in campaigns, too, that we never really fully appreciated until we saw someone who was not a politician, who was not subject to the norms, come out and hunt where the ducks are because he wasn't he wasn't playing in this same sandbox with these people. And I just think that's really interesting. People hate the fundraising. Everyone hates the super PACs. They hate the IEs and all the money. But here's an example of how that constraint had actually brought the party messaging to the place where it was. It, can I just, can I read a quote from yeah. the book? I've been doing it. You can too. Well, this, this, is a quote from, quotes. This, is, this is a quote from a staffer in one of the Koch brothers organizations. We invested a lot in training and arming a grassroots army that was not controllable. <laughs> and Did you know? <laughs> so I think what Trump's success in the primary really shows is that many Republican leaders did not know who their voters were. They did not know that or seemed to think it was unimportant that many of these voters had serious concerns about immigration. They didn't take a Chamber of Commerce view that it was great to have cheap labor coming across the border. Many of these voters thought that entitlement programs were great, thought we should raise the minimum wage, thought we should raise taxes on the wealthy. That's like a third of Republican primary voters who have those kinds of attitudes. And when Trump came out and said all these heterodox things about, you know, Medicare and Social Security and things like that, that was totally out of step with what the party had been doing in Congress, what Paul Ryan's philosophy was. But at the same time, it was totally in line with what a lot of Republican voters wanted. Ezra, let me just say one of the neat things that we're able to do in this book because of funding from the Democracy Fund and a project that they uh, funded called the Voter Study Group is we can take those attitudes that John was just talking about that people had in 2011 before Donald Trump was out there saying anything. So it isn't the case that it looks like Republican primary voters are saying those things because Trump told them, like, if you're for me, this is what you're for. We can eliminate that possibility. People had these views in the Republican primary before Trump emerged on the scene. And what else distinguishes Donald Trump's support? Are his voters poorer than the other Republican primary? Not really. So the economic stress hypothesis doesn't, at least like on a high level, look, no, look distinctive. No, it doesn't really have any strong do, relationship to how Republican voters made their choices. Do they have different racial attitudes? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the big thing. Um, you can take views of African-Americans, particularly this view of racial inequality that Michael was describing. You could take views of immigration. You can take views of Muslims. And all of these things are much more strongly related to your support for Trump than the other candidates. And of course, they're also more strongly related to your support for Trump than it was true in the 2012 Republican primary, the 2008 Republican primary. I mean, these are not things that have always mattered to the extent that they mattered. Um, and it's really telling to think about an issue like immigration because here's a question where you had clearly a faction of the party that was already somewhat conservative on this issue. And Cruz was going to be that guy, right? Cruz was going to be the guy that was going to distinguish himself from, from Rubio and from Bush on this issue. And, you know, we have this measure of your views of immigration. And you start out on the more favorable side. And as you go across that scale, support for Trump goes out, up and support for Cruz goes up, but support for Kasich and Rubio would go down. And then you get to the very top of that scale, the people who have the least favorable attitudes, and then you see support for Cruz drop and support for Trump go up. And so in some sense, 
you know, Trump succeeds where Cruz thought he might succeed and being the candidate that the voters with the sort of the least favorable attitudes about immigration would support. All right. So that's actually an interesting bridge to the Democratic side of this. And I want to start here. You write, and Mike Gole, I assume this is you, once a candidate of racially conservative whites, Clinton now depended on her strong support among blacks. The impact of race and racial attitudes in 2016 was strikingly different than in 2008. Yeah, so 2008, that's when we first started to look at the correlation between these attitudes and Obama. It's really hard to say that one thing is the most important thing in political science. That's like a big no-no. You don't say this factor is the most important. But with, but. Par- <laughs> but with partisanship uh, negated and Clinton and Obama having pretty similar views, the one thing that really, really strongly predicts views in 2008 are racial attitudes and attitudes about Muslims, I should say, also, which I think will become pretty important later on. You also see race really dividing that election as well with African-Americans breaking overwhelmingly for Barack Obama. Are you talking in the primary? In the primaries. Yeah, in the 08 primary. In the 08 primaries. And then what you see in 2016 is that relationship just completely disappear for racial attitudes among whites. And then you also see the racial gap completely flip where Clinton is now the candidate of African Americans. That's fascinating. Given Clinton's reputation now that I think people really forget that the 08 primary had this quality where like she was a candidate of West Virginia like downscale what like she had a she had a special connection to them she could drink vodka do you remember that West whole Virginia thing? rural Pennsylvania there was a point during that race where Obama says who is this is this Annie Oakley or is this Hillary Clinton my favorite when I used to give presentations was Rolling Stone had this cartoon of Hillary Clinton she's got a Confederate flag hat on she's got like overalls she's got a gun is Hillary Clinton is basically Bubba 2.0, and that's the type of race that she was forced into running against Barack Obama. And this is how all of this spillover, all of this growing racialization of politics, this is how we came up with it, was just observing how racially liberal Democrats, who had always liked Hillary Clinton, now flipped, and how racially conservative Democrats, who hadn't really liked Hillary Clinton before 2008, now they were like, hey, we kind of like her. Michael, what's the quote from OH? She says, um, Got it. oh, okay, yeah, John, read it to us. The quote is so amazing because it shows you that this wasn't just a cartoon. I mean, this is what she actually said. You know, she, as she was making the case that, you know, she was oh, really the Democratic nominee. I had forgotten about right, this. Right, so she's ta- she, starts ta- she says this thing about whites who don't have a college degree who are, again, disproportionately likely to support this her is, over She's Obama. losing the nomination, yes. and these big states are coming up, and she thinks, I am going to take the nomination because I'm going to win specific right. voters in these big this states. Like Pennsylvania so she calls them, and stuff, right? She says— and she says she calls them hardworking Americans, white Americans. So she conflates hardworking and white, which, of course, is like they could write dissertations on that. And then she says, these are the people you have to win if you're a Democrat in sufficient numbers to actually win the election. Everybody knows that. Ooh. Turned out to be true and not true, I guess. <laughs> it, you know, it was the, the, the voters she didn't need to win to win the nomination, but she did need to win to win the presidency in 2016, it turns out. So, but there's a, a version of this that didn't happen, too. Um, you write that even though Clinton was the first woman to win a major party nomination, she did not elicit much additional support among women, nor did women's own sense of gender consciousness much affect their choice between her and Sanders. The Democratic Party, I thought this was a very interesting sentence. The Democratic primary thus confirms a longstanding finding in American public opinion and voting behavior. Party and race matter more than gender. Why? Yeah, and so the the reasoning behind that is that 
race is characterized by separation and gender is characterized by intimacy. You see Donald Trump talk about this with Kavanaugh when he says, hey, don't you think women are upset? And he's like, no, because women are thinking about their husbands. They're thinking about their brothers. They're thinking about their sons. Although there has been a huge Trump women gap and also a Kavanaugh woman gap. And I don't think that Hillary Clinton necessarily was the best candidate to activate that gender consciousness. However, it has been a difficult thing to activate. And we were asked earlier today, what was the thing I was most shocked about doing this book, and it was that gender consciousness did not come to play a larger role. But that is consistent. It's consistent with 2008. In 2008, it was actually sexists who were most likely to vote for Hillary Clinton in the primary. And part of this is because your gender conservatives tend to be your racial conservatives, and the dividing line of that race was race. And so you end up with that bizarre finding. Politics is very strange. There's another quote here. Although Sanders voters tended to describe themselves as more liberal than to Clinton supporters, the two groups differed little on economic policies. That that seems to blow up a lot of the conventional wisdom about 2016, Len. Yeah, there was a Vox writer, actually, um, Matthew Iglesias. We have a quote Hack. from him. I know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, he, Matt, to his credit, was reflecting, I think, a pretty prevailing view of what the primary was about. And the quote was something like, one person said, I don't remember if this was Matt, was, the Sanders campaign's a watershed in the development of progressive politics. And another person, this might be Matt, said that, that Sanders voters want the Democrats to be a different kind of party, a more ideological, more left-wing one. Then you look at a bunch of polling data on issues about you know, the government's role in providing health care, child care, the kinds of things that you would think that would be implicit in Sanders' vision of a more sort of D- Danish-style social welfare state. And Clinton voters agree with those things basically at the same level that Sanders voters do. And there's just no ideological cleavage in the party, which is fascinating because I think people thought the Democratic debate was an ideological cleavage about economic policy and and stuff like that, and it wasn't. It was actually the Republican primary where you could distinguish Trump voters from voters of other candidates based on how sort of out of step they were with Republican Party orthodoxy on economic policy. It's one of the ways that the title of the book is different in the Republican primary than it is in the Democratic primary. So there's an identity crisis in both parties as they're trying to figure out what's our way forward. But in the Republican primary, it is about policy based on identities, in-groups and out-groups, and what kind of policies we want to have to help us navigate that. And in the Democratic primary, it's more about who you are descriptively. Are you a man or a woman? Are you young or old? And it's less about that we differ in terms of our policy ideas. So there's a fascinating um, piece of this where you write that for all that we're talking about here, the impact of social identities in Democratic primary was so strong that the results of individual state contests could be predicted quite accurately if you knew only two factors, the percentage of African-Americans in the state and the percentage of Democrats in the primary electorate. Can, can you talk through? So those were the key cleavages, basically, how African-American the state was and whether or not there were a lot of independents in the Democratic primary electorate? Yes, that's exactly right in terms of that's where you saw the big divisions. Those divisions, too, were evident Even before Bernie Sanders starts to get any traction, it was pretty clear that Hillary Clinton was going to do really well with strong Democrats. But if you're an independent-leaning Democrat, they were not on board with her from the very beginning. And so I do think that probably has more to do with her than with Bernie Sanders. And the result that we find with regards of race is that you could just explain about 80% of the variation in primary vote choice 
with just how many African Americans were in that state. The reason for this is that Clinton runs as Obama's successor. I mean, of course, she was a member of his administration, and Sanders refuses to do that. And I think his advisors at one point suggested that maybe he needed to stop criticizing the sitting Democratic president and, you know, a president beloved by Democrats generally, but especially by African Americans, but he wouldn't do it. And so in some sense, if there was ever an opportunity for Sanders to make some inroads into these uh, demographic divides among Democratic voters, he'd never really tried very hard to do it. All right. So we get to the general election. Um, I think that the place a lot of people were in when the nominations were figured out and seen was Republicans have elected this lunatic and they're going to really pay for it. Like they've made a terrible mistake. And the I mean, God, you remember all the pieces about like Republican civil wars and, and a party in total collapse. How different was the outcome of the election than what we would have predicted if we did not know the names or identities, if all we knew was a Democrat was running against a Republican in 2016? You would have been right. The prediction based on economic performance with doesn't matter who the candidates are, just, you know, what's the growth rate in the country? You would have gotten the election outcome spot on. Yeah, she won by two points in the popular vote, and that's very close to a number of different forecasts that came out of these simple models that use things like the economy to predict elections. Do you think that Donald Trump underperformed where a Republican would have been otherwise? Generic Republican? Overall, probably yes. I mean, different models had slightly different estimates um, in a few models even showed that Trump was likely to win. So the answer is a little bit tricky, but I'd say on average, you could certainly say that Clinton probably ran a little ahead of where she should have run. So Trump paid a little bit of a price. I think that that's right in terms of one of the factors that's really important is Clinton's running for a third Democratic term. And so just that alone puts her at a big disadvantage. And so I do think Trump underperformed at the national level. But what we get into in the book is that he was really efficient in the states that he needed to win. And those states that he did win and where you saw the biggest swings tended to be states that had more low-educated white voters. And so I don't know if another Republican is able to get that same electoral college map. And, of course, that's what matters. So I think this is really fascinating. Did the election change— any of your views on how much candidate choice matters? Candidate choice meaning what? Like, would your pri- which, would who your, the candidate is as a person? Yeah, would your priors have been that if you elect somebody acting and performing like Donald Trump, you'll pay more of a penalty for it? I think that it's worth separating out the question of Donald Trump as a person and the kinds of things he said and the unusual nature of the content of his campaign and the unusual nature of the effort of his campaign. Because he really was unusual in both ways. Didn't run ads in the summer, wasn't going to raise money, all those things. So I think you're asking about the former thing. Like, would we have thought that nominating a a candidate like that was going to say the things he said? Yeah, that was going to say, accuse Ted Cruz's father of killing John F. Kennedy Jr., so I'm a big believer that the these economic fundamentals structure the race, but that what the candidates say is important. And so if you had just said to me that he was going to say these kinds of things about Ted Cruz and, you know, little Marco, and I would have said, yeah, they're going to pay a price for that. But if you had told me that in the service, in doing that, that was going to be in the service of a message about race and patriotism, I might have said, ah, okay, that might be a different story. 
I would have said he was going to pay a cost. One, because he was generating all of these controversies and scandals, and he would generate them and double down on them, like with the Khan family when he was criticizing them after the Democratic National Convention, even though people finally were telling him, stop it, stop it, and he kept doing it. Or when Alicia Machado comes forward and, and, and then he doubles down on his criticisms of her. Um, and I also thought at some point that the, the fact that Trump was raising so much less money than a typical presidential candidate, that his campaign was such a much more ramshackle operation. So that's the effort part. Yeah, that yeah. the effort part would have been different too. And I think, you know, in some sense, if anything, the fact that Trump can succeed and kind of get close to what you would have expected almost any Republican candidate to get without doing what a candidate typically does maybe suggests that it, increasingly it doesn't really matter who the presidential candidates are or there's more room than we thought was true for candidates with seemingly sort of wrong decisions and behaviors to win no matter or to do well no okay. matter what. But let's just be clear. Like we're talking now in terms of ele- of the election outcome and the number of votes they're getting. Like I don't think anybody wants to say it doesn't matter who the candidates are period, because we're not here talking about Right, I'm talking about election outcomes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think another way of thinking about this question, which I hear a lot on the Democratic side, is that if Donald Trump did better than you might have expected from your priors, it's only because Hillary Clinton was almost as bad or maybe even worse of a candidate than he was. That that really all you're seeing here is not the stability of the underlying partisan and identitarian compositions of the electorate, but the total, like— terrible decision it was to nominate Hillary Clinton. Do you buy the idea that a Joe Biden or a Martin O'Malley or I guess more to the point of Bernie Sanders would have heavily outperformed Clinton in the election? I don't know about heavily, but I I do think that she probably helped Trump out. And one of the ways that she helped Trump out was that she carried a lot of baggage. And one of the things that we're able to show is that over time during the campaign— Hillary Clinton's honesty goes way, way down. Her rating, the people's ratings of her honesty. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I should say that. The people's ratings of her honesty. No, uh, <laughs> nothing about that. Um, and Trump's honesty rating actually goes up to the point where by the fall— Well, he became so honest. By the fall, they crisscross. <laughs> and when you have your opponent rated lower on honesty than Donald Trump— yeah, I do think that that negates one of Trump's major weaknesses. So, Ezra, let me, I just want to—this is another one of these things that, like, I think about this a lot. And in spring of 2014, I had the privilege of hosting Hillary Clinton at UCLA, and we did this big event in, you know, the, the auditorium on campus. And she hadn't yet said she was going to run or not. But the energy at that moment from not just the people in that auditorium, but from people in the country for her to run was crazy. And I, you know, I had a little joke and I tried to get her to say she was going to run in the hall erupted like LeBron James had just walked in. So one of the things that's interesting to me when I think about this is knowing what we knew then or knowing what the Democratic Party knew then, could they have known that she was going to end up being in this position. And I think it's really interesting to think about. Now, Michael mentioned the the baggage or the constraints that she brings with her. All candidates come with constraints. Yes. So the party and people in the party, leadership, voters will have maybe forgotten, but leadership should have recognized that all those constraints from the 1990s are going to come up. 
the thing, though, about the honesty changing and a lot of the ways we saw those movements happening over 2016 is driven by the things that are happening in 2016. So the email situation and the Comey letter and these kinds of things. And I don't know if there was a way to know a priori that that's how that was going to go. One of my favorite pieces of this is I think back to 2012 or 2011. And I feel like this is a height of monkey cage crapping on bad reporting and bad punditry. (laughs) So I think John will remember this. You think John's mellowed? I think he's mellowed. Um, I think he's Hmm. been humbled by by the Donald Trump experience. (laughs) (laughs) And... But there were all these articles that kept coming about, uh, coming out about how Barack Obama was going to drop Joe Biden from the ticket or he should drop Joe Biden for the ticket and he should replace Joe Biden with the single most popular politician in the country, Hillary Clinton. Right. And like, I think, again, it's easy to forget that at the beginning of the Democratic primary, why doesn't Elizabeth Warren run? Why doesn't Joe Biden run? It's because Clinton is polling in the 60s. Like Her approval rating was ridiculously high. So obviously it was a bubble, like you poke it with a pin. But it's worth talking a little bit about what the pins that it got poked with were. You write that the coverage of Clinton's scandals was not only more extensive than coverage of Trump's scandals, but arguably created a more coherent narrative. It's funny because we were talking about the press earlier because there's one issue about how much the press covers Donald Trump. And another, I wouldn't say about how much it covers Hillary Clinton, but how much coverage of Hillary Clinton is filtered through her emails. I remember Lester Holt did this candidate primetime forum and he asked – I think he gave each candidate, uh, Trump and Clinton, something like eight questions. And if I'm not misremembering – the first five or six were about the emails to the extent that it created backlash. But you write that the way her scandals were covered, even though there were many fewer of them, was worse for her than the way Trump's scandals were covered for him. Yeah, and that's the problem. So we have two different sources of data that were analyzed by two different sets of scholars that were looking at like thousands of media well, This sounds outlets. very scientific. No, it's totally, <laughs> no, because it's important to bring in this stuff because people's memory of media coverage is always sort of – you know, unreliable. And so, well, I remember there was once a story about this thing. And well, actually, but across, you know, thousands and thousands of stories, this is what was true. So it's absolutely the case that Clinton's emails-related scandals, which involved the server, which involved the hack of the DNC emails, the hack of the Podesta emails, all of the emails stories were more voluminous than the stories about Trump's discrete scandals. That was back to the primary, right? Trump's scandals tend to come in the news and then go out of the news and be replaced by something else. And that's in the news and that goes away and then it's replaced by something else. Clinton's scandals were cumulative. And this is the point you said about narrative, right? They, they all tied in not just to a narrative that was true about her in 2016, but to a narrative that had dogged her since her days in the White House when Bill Clinton was president, that she was deceptive or dishonest or concealing things. And the Clinton campaign, to the extent that it that it failed, you know, as a campaign, they say this themselves, so I'm not really the source of the criticism. They just didn't have a good strategy for managing this conflict. They did what they typically do with the media, which is stonewalling and, you know, letting sort of quasi-apologies dribble out until they send a slightly larger apology. And it just makes the story continue and continue and continue and continue. Um, And I think that, in some sense, is why her honesty rating took such a dive and why she was unable, despite many of Trump's own controversies and scandals, to seemingly put away an election that she should easily have won. I think one thing that she also did that's bad media strategy was she essentially played 
what you might call a prevent defense, which if you're a football fan, you know that the prevent defense, the only thing it does is prevent you from winning. And the reason is, is that— In theory, your opponent from winning, right? (laughs) Well, no, it prevents you because you just drop your safeties back. They dink and dunk (laughs) you to death. But that's not important. No, no, but really? Like a a prevent defense isn't meant to keep you from winning. No, but that's the joke is is that in practice, the only thing it does is keep you from winning. I don't really know very much about sports. (laughs) Or as Mitt Romney would say, sport. (laughs) So Clinton and Trump hammers her. She doesn't have a press conference for something like 71 days. She sits on her lead and she tries to play it cautious. She tries not to make mistakes. And one of the things we know about media politics is access is key. And if you're trying to control the narrative and you are not providing access, the media is going to rewrite that and they are going to substitute it with their own frame. And in this case, the frame was often emails and deception. Lynn brought up the question of counterfactuals. And when John brings up the idea of they didn't have a strategy, I've wondered about this a little bit. I think that prior to this election, and you still hear it sometimes in the aftermath, that people would have said, what you should have done is be more open is apologize more. And something I definitely noticed would happen is she eventually did apologize. And then because she had admitted it was wrong and the media was covering it, so now everybody's admitting it's wrong. Like now it was a real a real wound. What Donald Trump always did was just turn it around, right? This was like the fake news media. This was them. Um, Newt Gingrich very famously did this at, uh, was it 2012? God, when? Yeah, South when Carolina he, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he Tom Williams. Tom Williams. Yeah. I wonder a little bit about the counterfactual in which Clinton had not given more access to the media. And as a member of the media, I would not have enjoyed this, right? I I, I don't want politicians to do this. But I wonder if the lesson politicians aren't going to take going forward is don't apologize counterattack. That make this about the media being against you. Use it to tribalize your own supporters to increase enthusiasm. That that seemed to me to be what he understood. That as long as it was always a fight between him and the media, as long as he never admitted it was wrong, well, then there was always an uh, like some opportunity there. There was an argument he could win. Clinton would stonewall, but would you know she didn't like criticism, so she would eventually admit it at least to some degree. And I've just always wondered about the counterfactual where she just turns on the media. And if it begins to work for Democrats and Republicans, it's going to be a very bad thing for the media. I don't think you have to worry about that. Well, good. Cross that off your list of things that you're losing sleep about, you know, at night. I think that Trump is unusual in so many ways. And one of them is his ability to make news, again, because of just what he is. And most politicians, especially those who don't have the legacy and the gravitas of someone like Hillary Clinton, most politicians don't have her amount of experience and time in the White House already and in government. They need you. Mm -hmm. They need you. And they know that. First of all, they're not going to say something like Trump would say to get on the news. So to get on the news or to get taken seriously by you, they need you. And— I don't think you need to worry about now everybody who's has political ambitions. The minute that the media writes something controversial or something they don't like, they come back with. And your enterprise is in real jeopardy, buddy. We've talked a bit about the emails, um, the Comey letter at the end of the campaign. I think among Democrats and actually among Hillary Clinton, this is the explanation for why she lost. If James Comey had not sent the letter, is Hillary Clinton president today? 
it's hard to say. I mean, that's the that's the only answer. Oh, <laughs> so here's the here's the thing. I mean, Nate I, Silver said she is. I know, and, and so I, I think our view is just um, we're just more uncertain about its impact um, than than Nate is. What we can show in, in our book is that. Um, and we have some data that I don't think people have really looked at extensively, but Gallup was in the field every day interviewing like 500 people and asking, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? They weren't asking who you're going to vote for, but they were asking about your views of each candidate. And it's absolutely true that like on the day that the Comey letter is released, her favorability takes a hit and it drops over the next four days or so. And it looks pretty clearly tied to the letter. But then it bounces back, and it bounces back even before the second letter that says nothing to see here comes out. And she gets back almost to where she was in terms of her overall uh, level of, well, in this case, it's unfavorability, but like, you know, where she was. And the, meanwhile, the, the polls that were out there measuring, are you going to vote for Trump or Clinton? There's just not clear movement tied to the letter itself. So we're uncertain, but you could certainly say, look at the news coverage, and the news coverage of her gets more negative as a consequence of this. And so you can imagine a counterfactual world in which you subtract the letter, you subtract the attendant news coverage, and maybe that makes just enough of a difference at the end of the day. But again, I think we have to approach that with with real uncertainty. And my problem with a lot of the debate, and also with Clinton's own view, apparently, in her book, is that it's just, it's absolutely true. It has to matter with 100% certainty. And I think we can't say that. The other way to think about it, again, is that she does win the popular vote. So now we're really asking if the Comey letter changed votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And so then you're really looking at the differentials there relative to maybe what the baseline expectation was from 2012. And do you think that the Comey letter is explaining that differential? One thing we think may have been the biggest effect of the Comey letter was is that it made— The Comey letter. The, the, Comey. the traditional French, <laughs> the traditional French <laughs> it pronunciation. Made, it made Trump shut up. And so this was a big thing. And what we would see throughout the campaign is— the race would get close. Trump would say something crazy. It would balloon to a place where it had no business being six, eight, ten points. And then Comey letter comes out. And <laughs> I will keep saying Comey. <laughs> Comey letter comes out, and they make a concerted effort. We are going to let this story play out. We are going to take away Trump's Twitter. And you don't see Trump doing anything crazy after October 28th that could have thrown the race out of whack. And so that, to me, is probably the biggest effect of the letter, is that it put Clinton in the news. When Clinton was in the news, her poll numbers were going down. When Trump was in the news, his poll numbers were going down. And it prevented him basically from having another big misstep. There's an interesting piece of that for for me personally. So after the debates, I wrote this piece about, I don't remember what exactly the headline was, but something like Clinton's debate performance like left the Trump campaign in ruins. It was like some very uh, hot headline. But the, the point of it was that usually debates don't have this big effect on polls, whereas before the debates, they were nearly tied. And after the debates, I think she had something like a six, seven, eight point lead. It was huge. Um, and then it, after uh, that piece, uh, it, it closed back again. And people throw that piece back at me, but I actually very much stand by it, that it 
But that is possibly an explanation. And that part people of the re- saw Donald Trump talking at the debates, like, ah, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. Then it sort of backed off, like, you know what? Why not? But, Let's but part, roll the dice. Part of it also after that first debate is it's not just the debate. It is going on Fox and Friends and saying that Alicia Machado gained a tremendous right, yeah. amount of weight and it was a big problem. I mean, these were and, not just debates. They were television spectacles. Like, I think back to— just how anxious I was when I found out only hours before, whether, I don't, second or third, whatever debate it was, that Donald Trump had invited So many crazy things you're reminding me of here. And I just thought, like, this is— The women who— have sued or, or said they've been attacked by Bill Clinton. Yeah, and, and that they were going to do this press conference in advance, but then he was going to seat them in his his front row reserved seats. And I thought to myself, what has happened to presidential campaigns? I did not know what was going to happen. So they weren't just regular debates. No, they were regular debates. Well, <laughs> in, in the aftermath, but I mean, they were unusual in their content. Yeah. Now, I get to play the role of the political scientist who gets to say, yeah, things weren't that different. So if you look at the poll numbers, right, and you know, we can track this very carefully, it's absolutely true that that first debate hurt Trump and appeared to help Clinton. It's tied to the Machado controversy. It's a little tricky to parse out the effects of all of these things. But then in the second debate, eh, it's not clear it does as much. The third debate— after the third debate is when Republicans start rallying to him. Who the, the Republicans who left him because of the maybe the first debate, maybe the Access Hollywood thing, you know. So in some sense, when you get to the end of the debate period, we're actually most of the way back to where we were at the beginning of the debate. And so this is like a, after the third debate, it's time to settle into the polls. Yeah, and so it's the same thing that happened in 2012, right? So the, the first debate, Romney gains, Obama loses. You know, people lose their minds for like a week. And then after the next two debates, it returns to sort of Obama up by four and he wins by four. And it's not really a a big game changer. How about Russia? This has become a big thing uh, among Democrats. Um, I know you all have a view on Russia. Yeah, so here we go. I think we don't think that it changed the outcome of the election. And Could you say that to me in in Russian? Uh, You spy? (laughs) uh, So the... As I understand it, there's three components of the case for Russian intervention changing the outcome of the election. One, they hacked the emails and they released the emails, particularly the Podesta emails relatively late in the campaign. The challenge is you can't really identify clear trends in the polls or anything that changed as a result of this. Clinton's honesty rating doesn't change. She doesn't clearly lose any ground because of it. I mean, you have to construct kind of this elaborate triple bank shot counterfactual where if that hadn't been in the news, then this other thing could have been in the news and then that would have helped Clinton and hurt Trump and maybe, and then six other things would have been different and she would have won. Second, fake news. All the bots and stuff on Twitter pushing these stories, Pope endorses Clinton, whatever. The problem is that when people actually went out and measured who saw the fake news by like actually tracking people's browsing behavior for the last six weeks of the election, it was this small number of very strong conservatives who are not the kinds of people who were marginal voters or persuadable voters. Third thing, all that the Russian-sponsored ads on Facebook. This was such a minuscule amount of advertising on Facebook that a Republican, a senior Republican strategist snickered and told me, I've spent more on digital in a Nevada attorney general's race than the Russians spent in the presidential election. They spent so much less than 
even Trump and Clinton spent on digital. And that's before we get into all of the other content that people were exposed to in the campaign. So here's the metaphor that I think we can use. The campaign, like a lot of presidential campaigns, is a fire hose of information blasting you all the time. And here comes the Russians, and they put like three drops from a medicine dropper into that fire hose, and somehow that's the thing that changes people's minds. It's contrary to so much of what we know about what is actually persuasive in presidential campaigns and how much people can be persuaded. So that's a long answer, but we really feel pretty strongly that the prevailing view among a lot of people has really exaggerated the extent to which this could be consequential. And that sometimes the argument that is being made is that oh, this sides Tesla and Vavrick book says that identity really mattered, and those Russian ads were about identity, therefore they really mattered. And, you know, we just want to say that that argument is not an argument we're making. Right. So to wrap all this up about 2016 at least, this is something I am taking from Larry Bartels. So Larry Bartels, Vanderbilt political scientist, great political scientist. I went in not too long after the election, and I was like— Given him all these theories about why things turned out the way the way they were, because I was over there for a talk, and he's like, "Yeah, there was nothing weird about this election at all." I was like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Yeah, if you just look at the exit polls, everything's totally normal." And you guys have this line in here that the extent of partisan loyalty was almost identical from 2008 to 2012, and then it was roughly the same from 2012 to 2016. And we talk a lot about what was different in this election, but the thing I can't get over is how much was the same, how much that. This is part of a book I'm writing, but we talk a lot about identity politics and what people tend to mean is race and religion and things like that. But in part because of the stacking, it seems to me that the overwhelmingly like driver of identity politics is Republican, Democrat, red, blue, left coalition, right coalition. And that the lesson I take from 2016 is that even if you nominate someone as wildly out of step with historical norms as Donald Trump, it is not strong enough to crack that fundamental path dependence. Yeah, I mean, I think that's mostly right. And that's why we spend three chapters on the Republican primary is that if you win the Republican primary in a 2016 context, you had a very good chance of winning the election. And that is because you could count on 90% of your partisans voting for you. Would it have happened if the Democrat was a less detestable figure to Republicans than Hillary Clinton? I think still probably, yeah, because at the end of the day, who am I going to vote for? As Marco Rubio said, am I going to vote for somebody who I disagree with sometimes or am I going to vote for somebody who I disagree with all of the time? And I think that's the power of partisanship. But I I don't want to say everything was the same. And the reason where we get off is on these uniform swings. And usually when elections happen, you see swings, everybody move in the same direction. We didn't see that in 2016, particularly with education. And so it has never happened where you see high-educated voters move towards the Democrats and low-educated voters move to the Republicans. They usually move in unison. Doesn't happen where you see some states become more democratic and other states become less democratic. That's also tied to education. And so, yeah, I think that that was one of the hard parts about the book is that there was a lot of things that made this a normal election. And there were some very important things that made it an unusual election that could have real consequences going forward. I'm curious, having written this book, having thought through 2016 at this level of depth, how how are you thinking about 2018? It's a continuation of the identity crisis. 
And that's not just a branding opportunity for us. No, it's, but but I mean, it is also a branding opportunity. Well, for I, you know, th- there was a world in which um, we thought that maybe a Trump presidency would look different than the Trump campaign, uh, summed up in the phrase "infrastructure week," right? And we never got is, it, in- is that this week? Is this week? We never. It's all it, the real infrastructure week was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> it just it hasn't happened. You know, it's clear that for Trump, identity issues are his bread and butter, not just as a candidate, but as president. And it's for anything from the policies themselves, like family separation, or let's building a border wall or trying to, to limit Muslim immigration to the country, to the symbolic stuff about continuing to criticize NFL players. And what seems to be the case for the Republicans running in the midterm is that that playbook has become more and more tempting as other types of appeals, let's say, about the tax plan have fallen flat. And so now you're seeing a host of advertising or other kinds of campaigning that are implicitly or explicitly about these identities. And it's making people's own views of issues like immigration matter more for their congressional vote choice than was true, let's say, in the last midterm election. Lynn, one of the lessons I think I would take from this book, if I were a Democrat running in 2020, and this goes right to a lot of your research, is that Donald Trump wants to activate racial and nationalistic identities. And he does better when he does that. And then particularly now after he's become tied to the Republican tax plan and the Republican health care plan and the Republican Party, full stop, um, what a Democrat would want to do is really try to turn that conversation to economics, to taxes, to the working class. Is that the lesson of it, that Hillary Clinton let Trump frame the election too much? I think that that is— the way I would be thinking about it if I were also a Democrat thinking about 2020. The economy part of that, we have to caveat a tiny bit. If the economy grows and grows, Mm -hmm. then that Democrat doesn't necessarily want to be talking about the economy either. So the trick is, and it's probably going to grow, right? So the trick is, if you're that person, how do you reframe the election not about the economy, which is always one of the important issues, and not about these identity us versus them, inclusive, out, exclusive topics, but about something else on which you're closer to most voters than Trump and that you can reset the agenda onto. And that, I think, is doable, but it depends on who that person is. And I think it's quite hard. And when you think of what that is, you should let us well, all I know. Think a lot of, <laughs> I think a lot of listeners will listen to this and say, what it is, is Bernie would have won. No. Why, Why? not? Why? Because here's a candidate. He's an older white man. He has high favorability among sort of independent-ish Rust Belt voters. And what he talks about and the division he draws in politics is between the plutocrats and the people, the, the billionaires and the millionaires and, and, and the rest of us. And that maybe that would have been, rather than having Hillary Clinton talking about implicit bias and I'm with her, that what you really needed was this populist just driving in uh, – a social democratic message and that he could attract the fire to socialism and Medicare for all and make Trump run as a more traditional Republican as opposed to the sort of like immigration, racial, conservative backlash to Obama candidate. I think that the appeal of that in 2016 was coming from Trump. So I know you you did ask me originally and I didn't answer this part of the question. Was Hillary Clinton sort of complicit in making that part of the agenda? And I think that the answer to that is yes. When you start pushing back on Make America Great Again by saying stronger together, you are now having that conversation. But 
does she make it more important than it otherwise would have been? I'm not sure about that. So I don't think that the outcome would have been different if the nominee had been Bernie Sanders. And I don't think that that kind of message lowers the volume on identity politics in 2020. Do the two of you agree with that? Well, I think Hillary Clinton lost in part because of gender. And we're talking about a very small amount of votes. And one of the findings that does come out of the book is is that we think that Hillary Clinton was hurt more from gender than she was helped. You see men turn against her, men break against her more than any other candidate since Michael Dukakis in 1988. That's hard to overcome. And she's not able to overcome that with extraordinary support from women. And so and this also gets into how she was portrayed, how she had to campaign. And we talk about this. It's hard because we can't quantify it. But I do think that Clinton faced structural problems on how she campaigned, on how she was covered, that were fundamentally rooted in gender. And so I do think that a male candidate would have performed better. Now, that's not to say that another candidate, a Kamala Harris, a Kristen Gillibrand, could come around and maybe energize this dimension more than Hillary Clinton did with all of her baggage. But I do think that another candidate probably would have been better off. For 2020, I think it's hard to do that pivot because of where the energy is on the Democratic side right now. And if you're going to get through a primary, I don't think that you can get through a primary without talking about race, immigration, these type of issues that Sanders was hammered for, for preaching a message of economic inequality that ignored the historic entanglement of race and class. And I think if you try to run that message in 2020 in a Democratic primary with this energy and this backlash against Trump and the growing racial liberalism of the base, good luck to you. But what if it doesn't matter? I mean, this is the thing I always come back to because we have a conversation after every election outcome where the losing party has to change its message to win the next election. And the losing party never does what people say it's supposed to do. And then it oftentimes wins. You may remember 2004, it was the quote-unquote values voters that were key to helping Bush beat Kerry. So the next Democratic candidate had to appeal to values voters, says We are Brian Schweitzer from Montana, because you are a bolo tie. Maureen Dowd and Tom Friedman the day after the election. Did Obama win the election because he appealed to values voters? Not even remotely true. Then 2012 comes along, and now it's Republicans who have to appeal to young people and to racial minorities and to women to win the election. And then Trump does the exact opposite more so than anyone thought was possible, wins anyway. And now the question that Democrats have to confront is, well, maybe could we have won the election if we had done X, Y, and Z? Do we have to do X, Y, and Z to win in 2020? You know, in reality, it's rarely the case that you have to fight the last battle to win the next battle. You can oftentimes end up winning because, first of all, circumstances change. Something happens to Trump and his approval rating goes down. The economy doesn't grow as fast as it seems to be growing right now. Maybe something about one of these scandals, Russia or something, finally sticks to him. And moreover, there may be, as Michael said, enough energy, even energy animated by the very identity politics, quote-unquote, kinds of issues that Democrats were being told to avoid after they lost in 2016, that they end up winning, that the, the, the turnout and the things that weren't there for Clinton end up being there for the next Democratic nominee. So I'm kind of like, again, radically uncertain about whether you need to have a different message to get back to the White House. 
I think that's a good place to to end our conversation. So I always ask guests for three book recommendations at the end. That would take a very long time if I went and asked you all for three. So I'm going to ask each of you for one, um, starting, Lynn, with you. What, what What is a book that over the years has influenced you, let's say how you see American politics, that you wish everybody would read? That's tough. I like a lot of the books that have been uh, written about what's going on in the country in the last five years. But I think if I had to pick one— I want everyone to read Arlie Russell Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land. I just liked the way it told me the story about white grievance and politics counter to what a lot of people think would be people's interests. And I'll note, um, people, if they would like a taste of that, can go back to my podcast with Hochschild from a couple of years back now, but, but she's great on these issues. I'll go, ba- I'll, go, I'll go back to the classic, 1996, Donald Kinder, Lynn Sanders, Divided by Color. It really informs a lot of what we see, gets to the roots of the importance of, of racial politics and racial attitudes in the political divide. I'll go back even farther. If you want to think about why it is that we live in a world in which partisanship is a strong part of the way that people think about politics and vote, you've got to go back to a book called The American Voter that was written in 1960 by a team of political scientists from the University of Michigan. And, you know, it turns out that looking at survey data from the 1950s and understanding voters' choices in that time period and building theories about partisanship using that data is no less relevant today than it was 50 years ago. We'll end in 1960. Lynn Bavrak, Michael Tesler, John Sides, thank you all very much. Thanks, Thanks, Ezra. Ezra. Thank you. That's the show. Thank you to John Sides, to Lynn Bavrek, to Michael Tesler uh, for being here. Uh, thank you to them for writing this book, which has been so incredibly helpful for me in trying to get a better beat on what's going on. Thank you to you for being here, to my producer, Jen Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. If you've got a sec, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast, which helps us grow the podcast, and all kinds of good things result from that. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>